Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, water levels continue to rise in the Passaic River Basin, creating a pattern of flooding that's too much for many residents to bear. This is crazy. This is, this is ridiculous. They need to either build a higher bridge or build a higher wall so the water doesn't come this way because I've been told that this has been going on for years. Also, what we learned about last summer's deadly Newark port fire after week one of the federal hearing. Ted Goldberg breaks it all down. Plus, 100 days since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Students here in New Jersey band together to educate their community about the history behind the conflict. We made everyone sign a contract at our thing that you couldn't even like start really yelling. You could have a passionate conversation, but yelling was not allowed because it was a safe space to feel uncomfortable. And remembering Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On this holiday, local activists continue the push to make his former home in Camden a historical site. It's critical, it's a part of history. And so the fact that it's a part of history, then everybody needs to know. So whatever we can do to allow the awareness, um, then that's what we want to do. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Monday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Another winter storm is hitting the state. It's the first of two potential events this week alone. Forecasters say it'll be widespread, bringing with it two to four inches of snow across most of New Jersey. Up to five inches is possible in northwestern parts of the state, but the timing of the snowfall is expected to be the toughest part. Snow switching over to a wintry mix early tomorrow morning that could make for a messy commute and possibly delayed school openings. The National Weather Service is also tracking the potential of more significant snow Thursday into Friday and issued winter weather advisories beginning tonight for every county except Cape May and the coastal section of Atlantic. It's adding insult to injury for residents along the Passaic River, which is slowly receding in areas like Patterson and Little Falls after reaching major flood stage. The towns were battered by the recent rainstorms, and for the third time in a month, homeowners and residents are dealing with the aftermath, pumping out flood water and desperately seeking the state's help. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports. Horrible. Very horrible. This is not what I planned when I moved on the block. <laughs> Celestina Mendez moved into her Patterson apartment just three weeks ago on a street along the Passaic River. Now, like her neighbors and thousands of other flooded out folks, she's angry, demanding answers. This is crazy. This is, this is ridiculous. They need to either build a higher bridge or build a higher wall so the water doesn't come this way because I've been told that this has been going on for years. We need some, some help about that because we have six days without any hot water. All, everything is damaged downstairs. 
Angel Mejia showed us his basement where five feet of water's receding, leaving behind a damaged hot water heater and furnace. In just a few days, the flood drowned cars and blocked access to businesses like this body shop. How much do you think the business is losing? Uh, weekly, well, I can speak on my behalf. Weekly, we're losing over like $7,000 a week, if so, yeah, well, that's a lot of money. This is an ongoing problem for years, and you would think they would uh, be able to fix it. Nathan Pittman lives in a home that's been elevated above flood levels. The governor last week said Jersey's offering $10 million in aid to help homeowners elevate homes in high-risk flood zones or buy them out entirely. Derelict structures, obviously damaged in prior floods, sit abandoned along many of these streets. I mean, there's been talk that you want to dredge the river. So anything that can help alleviate the pain here in Patterson, because too many people are in pain in Patterson. Mayor Andre Saya met us on Bergen Street, where floodwaters had started freezing. Snow is expected tonight. He's pushing for funds to build a flood wall. We applied for a grant through the Department of Community Affairs. It's a flood resiliency grant, and it's to build a wall on McBride Avenue. The Passaic River is cresting at about nine feet right now, but the river's historic record topped 17 and a half feet back in 1903. That's not surprising given about 40 rivers and brooks empty into the Passaic Basin from all around North Jersey. The problem is draining that basin. 30 years ago, the Army Corps of Engineers studied the problem and recommended a 20-mile-long tunnel to drain flood water from the Wayne area down to Newark Bay, plus build more than 17 miles of levees and 6 miles of flood walls. Experts estimated that tunnel could cost $100 million a mile to construct, and the idea went nowhere. But now Congressman Bill Pascrell's asking the Army Corps to revive the concept. Saya agrees. I want to explore all options because these folks here, these poor people, need relief. He said the city's Office of Emergency Management still assessing damages and is joined with the United Way to raise funds for flood victims. The river's not expected to completely subside until later this week. In Patterson, I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Well, the public is getting its first look at what happened inside the Grande Costa de Avorio cargo ship when a deadly fire broke out last summer, killing two Newark firefighters. The U.S. Coast Guard and National Transportation Safety Board began a public hearing last week to examine the cause of the fire on the massive cargo ship carrying more than 1,200 vehicles and to probe deeper into the response. Ted Goldberg covered the first three days of the hearing, and he joins me with the latest. Ted, it's so good to have you. So what did we learn specifically about how this fire started that we didn't already know from last July? What investigators have been able to rule out is every theory except for that a pusher jeep, a jeep that's a modified jeep used to push cars onto this, uh, the cargo ship, that's where the fire started. This was, a sh uh, you know, this when you look at this jeep, uh, the lasher that was driving it, the worker that was driving it, you know, he had testified that there were no prior issues. He had thought that there were no prior issues with this car before the fire had started. And then all of a sudden he drives the car onto the ship and all of a sudden he's hearing from his coworkers about some of the dangers that are going on. We'll take a listen. This is from the day one of the hearing. All the other lashers are there to secure the vehicle to the deck and they start screaming at me to get out of the car because the car was on fire. That, of course, is Gavin Pachinski. He's the worker you mentioned who was using the Jeep that caught fire. 
So what do we know about the insight of any protocol to take care of this? Because it, it seems like so far there was no real structure in place to act if a fire like this broke out. There was a little bit of confusion just with the Jeep itself because as one worker testified, the Jeep was put off to the side. And as that worker said, it was common knowledge that if a Jeep is put off to the side, that means it's broken. The mechanic needs to take a look at it and clear it before it can start working again. But how that car came back into service, it was a little bit unclear. There was another employee who said, well, off to the side, that doesn't really mean anything. That was the general manager of Ports America. So there was a lot of confusion with whether or not this car should be back in service. Now, when the Jeep got back into the ship and once this fire actually began to spread, one of the first people to respond was the second in command on the Grande Costa Devoria, that was Benito LaFauci, and he testified tearfully. He, it was a very haunting experience, you could tell for him, and this is what LaFauci had to say about, you know, just dealing with, uh, you know, the fire and the flames and the smoke and the horrific aftermath. We are at the broken, that the two brave firefighters lost their life on board on the Grande Costa Devoria. We offer our deep condolence to their uh, family and uh, friends. Yeah, I mean, so emotional there. And I think uh, we've also been given the opportunity through the exhibits in, these, uh, in, in this hearing to see some of the images of just these charred vehicles on board. So you can only imagine what they were up against. What do we expect then for this next part of the hearing that you'll be covering this week? The next few days are really going to focus on the response from the Newark Fire Department and the other companies that responded to this fire. Obviously, started with Newark and then it expanded uh, from there. We heard a little bit about the initial response and some of the opposition. The captain, uh, Alessandro Moretti, said that he had some you know differences with how the Newark Fire Department was planning to respond, and we'll hear more from officials within the Newark Fire Department. Uh, later this week. We should also note that the end of this hearing, which will be later this week, does not conclude the investigation. It's merely a part of it. So when the investigation is over, that's when a report will come out from the NTSB, from the Coast Guard, and there is no timetable for that. So unfortunately, we will be waiting some time uh, for those recommendations to come forward. Yeah, and potentially even more answers. Ted Goldberg, Forrest, Ted, great work. Thank you so much. Thank you. The war in Gaza has now passed the 100-day mark. The Israeli Prime Minister last night vowed to continue fighting until Hamas is destroyed, all in response to the surprise attack on October 7th when the government says 1,200 Israelis were killed. Protests erupted around the world over the weekend, calling for a ceasefire as the famine and devastation mounts in Gaza. More than 24,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli airstrikes since the start of the war, tens of thousands more injured, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, and thousands of others are missing and presumed dead. The 100-day milestone was widely commemorated across Israel and here in New Jersey among Palestinian supporters and the families and supporters of the remaining hostages. Israeli officials estimate 25 have died while being held by the militant group and 132 are still in captivity. 
Among them, Tenafly native Idan Alexander, whose family pleaded with the American government this weekend to help bring him home. Governor Murphy catching heat on social media after posting on X about the immediate return of those hostages, but not mentioning the Palestinian-American residents in New Jersey who've lost family members in the war. We reached out to Governor Murphy's office for comment, but didn't receive a response in time for this broadcast. Meanwhile, the U.S. and New Jersey continue to see a staggering rise of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents since the war broke out. The U.S. Department of Education confirmed on Friday it opened a federal civil rights investigation into Teaneck Public Schools for what it calls discrimination involving shared ancestry, adding the district to a list of other educational institutions being investigated since October 7th, including Newark Public Schools and Rutgers University Newark. The Teaneck announcement comes after high school students staged a walkout in November in support of Palestinians. Despite those tensions, though, two Teaneck high school students, one Jewish, one Muslim, are working to bring their community together by helping them better understand the conflict. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports as part of Exploring Hate, our ongoing series of reports on anti-Semitism, racism, and extremism. I posted and I was like, who would be willing to help me with an educational event? And Leora had slid up and she was like really passionate about it. I had a lot of peers who were posting things on social media who had never like heard of Israel and Palestine before. So I thought I wanted to like let them learn in a space that wasn't just social media so they could ask questions without getting into like heated conversations. So when Leora Palavin messaged Roda Al-Batrawish on Instagram, the two created a plan to hold an educational discussion for their peers who attend Teaneck High School. They called it Through a Deeper Lens and held it at the Ethical Culture Society of Bergen County in October. With all the past tension in the town, I was really scared that this would end really badly. But how we started it was we had a Rutgers professor give a piece that kind of looks at things in the deep history of it, like the deep trauma of what's going on. Like for example, we looked into the Nakba and then we looked into the Holocaust and we kind of gave everyone basic, just basic information that everyone really needs to know. The students say the diversity of Teaneck made it ripe for a conversation like this, but they needed a framework to make it safe. Palavin drew on a program they attended this summer where they engaged with people who have extreme views on a number of issues from guns to abortion. We made everyone sign a contract at our thing that you couldn't even like start really yelling. You could have a passionate conversation, but yelling was not allowed because it was a safe space to feel uncomfortable. It's not really legally binding, but it, it meant that in the back of their heads, they were reminded to be uncomfortable, um, to listen to the other person, not to yell when you feel angry and upset. The event was such a success that they held a second one a month later called A Lens for All, specifically for adults in the community who they believe often steer the opinions of their children. It's really important to be able to recognize that they, the way you feel for your opinions, others feel for theirs. So if you're not going to change, you can't expect change within the other side. So are you willing to change your opinion? Is that what well, you're saying? Well, I won't be willing to change my opinion because I feel like I'm pretty strong with mine, but I'm willing to understand others, to sympathize with others, which is like really important. Like you're not being asked to change the way you feel towards yours, but you have to be able to have respect for the others as well. The goal of like the conversation wasn't to change people's opinions. I think it was to change how we view others' opinions. Did you find that you were able to facilitate conversations through other people's discomfort? What did that look like? So I know there was a couple tables at both of our events where there were strong difference in opinions. 
And that kind of, like I heard a lot of people that came to us after it and they were like, I felt uncomfortable with this part. But I personally feel like the minute you start feeling uncomfortable is the minute you start learning something new about the other. Our conversations here are not gonna change what's happening in Israel-Palestine. But we wanna change the situations around here so that in the future and for the long term, people have the ability to have these conversations online as well, but with everyone. The events aren't part of the Teaneck School District, but staff member My Connie Lay says the district supports their efforts. Project. I haven't met a, you know, very many students who have the passion or who have the um, incentive to try to bring about the change that they totally believe in. Um, which makes me so proud of them, and I get emotional thinking about it. And I hope that they are able to, you know, be the example to all the other youth in this, um, not just the school, but the nation. Leora and Roda are now starting a nonprofit called The Deeper Lens, where they're going to take this program that they've developed and offer it out to other school districts or community organizations that want to have similar, uncomfortable conversations within their own communities. In Teaneck, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. Governor Murphy got to work signing bills into law on Friday that were passed during the final days of the legislature's lame duck session, taking his pen to a package of bills aimed at improving immigrants' rights in the Garden State, creating a first-ever domestic workers' bill of rights, which will give more protections to some 50,000 workers in jobs like caretaking and housekeeping, many of whom are black and Latino. Another requires the state to translate state government records into multiple languages. The third changes how Asian residents can identify in demographic data collection. Now, the trio of new laws comes as New Jersey finds itself in the middle of a controversy with border states sending tens of thousands of migrants to New York City. Another law now on the books is the Seabrooks Washington Community-Led Crisis Response Act. Named after a Patterson and Jersey City man, Najee Seabrooks and Andrew Washington, who were fatally shot by police. It provides $12 million over three years to support a pilot program that will help towns create community crisis response teams. The state's Reparations Council is continuing its public outreach sessions to explore the history and impact of slavery in New Jersey. The council's Faith and Black Resistance Committee recently held the third installment of the hearings and focused on the rarely discussed role of organized religion supporting New Jersey's slave trade. Senior political correspondent David Cruz reports. It's worth noting that New Jersey was the southernmost of the northern states and as such was geographically well positioned to take advantage of the economic value of enslaved people. It was also the last northern state to abolish slavery. It was in that context that Faith and Black Resistance, a committee within the New Jersey Reparations Council, held its third public session recently. The topic of discussion? There was a historical role organized religion played in the supporting of the slave trade. Charles Boyer is the director of Salvation and Social Justice and the committee co-director. So whether that's the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church, many religious educational institutions like seminaries, many others all benefited from enslaved labor in some way whether it was members of clergy or the churches themselves owning enslaved black people. 
or the churches receiving taxes and tithes from congregants in the form of crops farmed and by enslaved people or money earned by slave holders. The wealth of these churches, which they still benefit from today, these denominations, these beautiful cathedrals and these endowments which are in place, which keep many of them alive, is inextricably intertwined with the slave trade. This is a range of, of culpable behaviors, a range of supporting behaviors. And there, there will be folks who, who are thinking, I, I never thought about church, church tithes on the backs of enslaved people as being the church supporting, supporting slavery. It, now is the time for us to think about that and to talk about that. It was in response to that that the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church, was founded in New Jersey and other states, noted Boyer. The council is the creation of the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice formed in response to the slow pace and reluctance on the part of state government to take on the discussion of reparations, including the who and the how of it. Ryan Haygood is the president and CEO. The New Jersey Reparations Council is finally confronting and working to repair the enduring harm from New Jersey's deep and often overlooked institution of slavery and its enduring impact on the contemporary life of black people in our state. With partners that include the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Rutgers Law School, the council will release a report on Juneteenth of 2025 with recommendations, which they hope lawmakers will use to deliberate on how a system of reparations could be implemented in New Jersey. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. And finally, as we celebrate the life and impact of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, activists in New Jersey are pushing to secure his legacy within the state. They say this civil rights icon lived in Camden for a short time as he was forming his historic nonviolent civil rights platform. The home is already recognized by the city, but has so far been denied historic status from the state because of conflicting research. Melissa Rose Cooper spoke to the group trying to turn the dilapidated building into a historic museum. The house is in deplorable conditions. We had a fire here back um, earlier last year. Yet Amir Khan says this house at 753 Walnut Street in Camden is part of the city's history that needs to be told. This is the house where Dr. King uh, stayed during the summers and weekends from 1948 to 1951 while he was a student at uh, Crozier Theological Seminary in Chester, PA. So during that time, obviously the school was mostly white. His best friend was staying here as well. But the most important thing was, was that on um, that special day on, on June 11th, uh, 1950, when Dr. King stood on those steps and was warned when he was getting ready to go down to the local cafe, Mary's Cafe in Maple Shade, New Jersey. Khan says historical records show Dr. Martin Luther King and his friends went to the cafe in Maple Shade where they were threatened and refused service. The incident is what is believed to have sparked Dr. King's nonviolent approach in the fight for civil rights after charges were filed against the white cafe owner. Now Khan and other local advocates are working to turn this house into a museum. People can walk in, they can actually walk on the steps that Dr. King walked. They can 
see the chair that Dr. King actually sat in and prepared his messages. The home was added to the city's historic site registry in 2016 and state lawmakers passed a resolution requesting the state make a similar designation, but it was denied based on a 2017 Stockton research paper questioning Dr. King's residence here. Researcher and civil rights activist Patrick Duff, who discovered the home in 2014, says he promised the previous owner that he would get it memorialized. It's been really difficult because they've not recognized it and um, uh, a lot of people think that, that they're wrong in not recognizing it, uh, including uh, John Lewis who came to this house and said this house must be safe for future generations unborn, New Jersey NAACP which drafted a letter to the, uh, the state of New Jersey's Historical Preservation Office asking for this to be placed in the registry. It's critical, it's a part of history and so the fact that it's a part of history then everybody needs to know. So whatever we can do to allow the awareness, um, then that's what we want to do. Roughly $100,000 in funding from the State Historic Trust is now being used for additional research into Camden's connections to the civil rights movement and Dr. King's connection to the area. Just knowing that and uh, having an understanding that that energy was, a, was there and that presence was there, that's great for the city and our community to know that a, 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 a person of that caliber who's meant so much to millions and millions of people was in the city of Camden. Once the study is complete and validated, the next steps will be to designate the site on both the state and national historical registers. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. And that's going to do it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Funding for Exploring Hate is provided by Charlotte and David Acker. Support also is provided by the Tiger Baron Foundation, Nancy and Morris W. Offit, and Josh Weston. NJM Insurance Group has been part of New Jersey for over a century. We support our communities through NJM's corporate giving program, supporting arts and culture related and nonprofit organizations that serve to improve the lives of children, rebuild communities, and help to create a new generation of safe drivers. We're proud to be part of New Jersey. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.